there's this really interesting interplay with Redwood between we spend a lot of time talking about community and organizing open source project. So that's a major theme. And then the other major theme is this full stack JavaScript framework and these methodologies that appear. As we start doing more with the data side and get more into full stack, the kinds of things you can do at build time and have visibility to just needs to get a lot better. As a friend of mine said, your current prototype is already outdated. Welcome back to FS Jam. We have an amazing guest on today from the core team at Redwood, David Price. With me is Anthony. Hello, hello. And remember, it's the David Price. The David, you know, it turns out there's a lot of David Prices, as you may now know. Um, we've got some really interesting subjects to ask David today. Some of them technical and some of them about him. Because as we know, a developer is two-sided. There is them as a person and the code they write. And sometimes to truly understand their abilities, you have to understand where they excel. So let's get to it. I'm excited and no pressure, right, Chris? No pressure. It sounds fun. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here, David. You really helped me get into the fold in terms of the community. And when it comes to like contributing to Redwood, I think I've talked to you more than everyone else on the team probably combined. So I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and helping me learn so much and kind of get spun up. And you've been a really great mentor. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, of course you're welcome. It's it's truly a pleasure. And it's been fun to watch uh, you, well, both of you in different ways and now working together, but just really take off. And I don't think we really envisioned this quickly in the Redwood project that we would see so many people having the opportunity to use Redwood as a springboard of sorts to do other things. I will say this again and again, so I hope it never sounds trite because it's a deep sincerity we all feel. It's really a pleasure. It's so much fun. It's been great for me. And like you said, as a springboard, it's led to me getting podcast interviews, doing meetup talks. I've had published articles now that I've been paid to write about Redwood. It's really been an incredible thing. Yeah, that's it is incredible. So yeah, it's really fun. Really fun. We want to get into not only what you do today in Redwood, but I really want to learn a little bit about your background. What have been the influences that have led to you? operating the way you do and i was taking a look at your linkedin and you study philosophy at oxford i'm sorry about the linkedin thing i did study philosophy at a place called oxford oxford uk or some place in america called oxford because that confuses many british people yeah there's a place for all the major cities in the world in texas somewhere right we've got paris texas that that's a very important question yeah it was actually oxford uk i was at keble college so that's legit right because if you do the oxford thing it's not oxford that's just the place but yeah i was at keble college a little bit backtracking there my undergrad work university of colorado boulder is where i studied my emphasis was biomedical engineering my main was mechanical engineering it was a really dissatisfying degree in the sense of i learned really well but you know every university is kind of feeding the industry around it in the states and there wasn't really this sense of design and holistic design for the engineering school at the time. That's changed a lot since then. But the thing I loved about building stuff was how technology could be applied to help people. I didn't really get that. My first job was actually working on landing gear struts 
on a Boeing AWACS, right? How fun is that? And I thought, this is not what I want to do with my life. Bioethics became something of interest, been of interest for a while, but it was kind of like, well, maybe I could leverage this technology degree I now have to find a way to really connect it with people and the human element. It's the intersection of the two. Technology and how it intersects with people has always been an interest of mine, especially how can we help people. I just didn't find that. So I thought ethics was going to be the thing. I started down the career path. I did not get a degree from Oxford. Actually came back and, and continued graduate work at the University of Colorado. It was really interesting. I found out ethics was basically going to lead to two career paths at the time for me. Or so I thought like I could be a professor or I could be in healthcare compliance at a large administration facility. And I didn't want to do either of those things. So I hit the eject button. But uh I still care deeply about those kinds of things. Yeah, man, early days, it is true. And I love the Bodleian Library. I have never felt so smart just like sitting in that place with all the books. Have you been there, Chris? The Bodleian? Am I even saying that? You say it. I, I want your accent to say it. Say the Bodleian. The, the Bodleian? Bodleian? I don't, I don't. Oh, Bodleian. Okay, maybe you don't. It's just, it's the library in Oxford and it's got history. So we don't have these things in the States. We don't have a thing that's hundreds of years old. And that's what it was. I went to a university called University of Lincoln. Lincoln, UK, not Lincoln, Nebraska. It gets confused quite often. (laughs) Hey, where I was born, you would never guess Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm that guy. You would not be surprised how many Google searches probably go from the UK to Lincoln, Nebraska. I just want to back what you said about college and university. At university, I studied computer science. A lot of the languages that I learned were heavily based in C and C sharp and C++ and they just never resigned with me. I got you could program computers and do cool things, but I would always go back to my crutch of JavaScript as I learned JavaScript before I went to university and it was my go-to language. It's very much this thing, sometimes you're privileged enough to go to college, but then you sometimes find out that it really disenfranchises you. When I came back, I felt like I learned not much from university because the skills I had for JavaScript, I very much self-taught them. That's a really interesting path as well. I could spend a lot of time talking with you about that, especially now when people ask you for, and I'm sure it happened to you, advice like, should I go to college? What should I study? And isn't it a tragedy of the commons, if you will, that education is not as much about learning to learn anymore as it is trying to make you marketable? And that's hard. We need both those things to happen. But it took me a long time, Chris, to reconcile the value of a degree that was really hard earned. I worked my ass off in college because I thought that was the way. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. And then to get to the end of it and realize I didn't want that job. But did I learn how to learn? I learned Pascal, C++, because that was applicable to mechanical engineering at the time. Yeah, this, I was curious about this, like how you got into programming. So it sounds like you were someone who was doing programming as a way to accomplish things within your degree. And, and I hear this story a lot from people who are in the hard sciences and they learn things like R or they, you know, they learn Python scientific libraries and things like that. So were you doing statistical type work or were you more so like actually writing programs? Like how did, how did you see what you were doing? <laughs> I wish there was a better theme or like a little more linear journey to these things. But first time I ever programmed, I'm a little older, was in the 80s in elementary school. I don't even remember what the computer was or what the program was, but I could plug in XY coordinates and a color 
and I could draw something on screen and just like blew my mind, right? Like, and we're not talking about a high resolution screen. I think like the pixels were probably what would be now like 16 by 16, like that was a pixel. So I actually did the grid on paper. I drew out the picture on engineering grid line paper. I went in and figured out all the XY. Could you imagine? Like probably took me a month of like just typing in XY coordinates. Well, it's so funny you say that. What that makes me think of, I once was watching a tutorial and it showed you how you could take the XY coordinates of your mouse position in the browser and set that to different pixel colors. So as you move your mouse around the XY grids, it changes the color of the background. That's the type of things that I've learned today that like parallels that. There you go. See, I, these skills are applicable. Look, I'll go on record and say the first time I ever programmed was inside Minecraft. Does that show my age? I am 24. Early on modding scene, so you know, you can install mods that allow you to open doors and blah, blah, blah. And then I moved from that into building my first website with HTML and CSS2. I remember HTML5 was like this brand new thing that it had like this weird icon that was a shield, but no one even used it. That's amazing. And how awesome for Minecraft, right? I envy you for all the pain you were able to avoid getting to start with HTML5. But the thing is, you talk about pain, there's so many different languages that just resonate so differently depending on how your brain works. Right. I'm dyslexic and I find JavaScript just clicks with me. But then when I was in university and I had to write C++ and C Sharp, it just never clicked with me as easily as JavaScript did. You would say that the industry is turning JavaScript into C Sharp with TypeScript. That's not a good or bad thing, really. I don't think anyone can control JavaScript. JavaScript does whatever it wants to do. Right now, it wants to be more like C-sharp. It'll hit a limit, and it'll rebound the other direction. <laughs> uh, I wrote, I mean, it's deleted somewhere in like 2006, 2007, that JavaScript would eventually be abstracted away. That's WebAssembly, right? It wasn't unpopular thinking at the time because the challenge then was JavaScript was becoming more powerful as a tool the browsers were behind. Compliance and compatibility across browsers was just terrible. Also, IE, all these things you wanted to do with JavaScript. So the answer at the time was compile. And so now we have Babel effectively, which is doing these things, but we didn't have Babel back then. Back then it would have been like CoffeeScript. Yeah, somewhere in there. jQuery was right answering those. Do you guys remember, Moo? did anybody ever Moo tool? Come on. I know about all these things just because I'm a history nerd. I didn't live through any of them, obviously. Yeah, I find the whole history of JavaScript really fascinating. I lived through, was it Target.js, where you used to basically take other people's libraries and compile them into modules yourself? CommonJS. Was it CommonJS? CommonJS is the module system that underlies Node. There's also RequireJS and AMD and all the kind of module systems that battled. It could have been AMD. It's been so long ago, three years. Right, it, it does change quickly, so... So let's get into um, how you came to Redwood, but I'm actually kind of curious, how'd you first meet Tom? Oh man. I think it's first pretense in, who is Tom? Who is Tom? Tom Preston Warner. Tom is a friend. Creator of Tom L. And, and, oh, Tom, well. Should we just say he's the creator of Tom L and, and call it a day? So things I didn't know about Tom, and I've known him for quite a while, was until the last year. Oh, Tom -o. Tom's obvious markup language. That was a good confession. Tom's obvious minimal language. Oh, mi minimal. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, uh, that was a good confession uh, over beers back when you used to be able to hang out with people and have beers occasionally. But I, So I met Tom. My work at the time brought me to San Francisco very unexpectedly, right? So most people don't 
have a family and then move to San Francisco. It's quite opposite. You have a family while you're in San Francisco and then you move and go somewhere else. So I was already swimming upstream, but end of 2013 is when we arrived in San Francisco. Kind of a mundane story. My wife's sister's family, brother-in-law Tim, good friend and brother-in-law, he's a computer scientist, worked at GitHub, was an early employee there. And I got to know a lot of the early GitHub employees because of Tim. Tim and Tom were great friends, obviously, because they were just like in the teens of people there at the time. So the first time I ever met Tom uh, was at a, a climbing gym in San Francisco. I remember the first conversation we had, there were two things that struck me about it. One, we were in a car driving somewhere and Tom and I spent most of the time being incredibly like critics of car dashboards and how terrible they are, right? Just, can't they just do something right? And can't they all do the same thing, right? We were both whining about that. Tim, Tom and I are in a car, this is 2013, driving somewhere, we're complaining about car dashboards and how terrible user interface design is. And I asked Tom where his wife was. I wanted to get to know Teresa. Teresa is in Northern Guatemala at the time with their, would have been like one and a half year old. Our children are the same, roughly same age, our oldest kids. And then Teresa was in Northern Guatemala doing humanitarian work with indigenous people. And I'm like, she sounds amazing. I don't, Tom, I guess you're okay, but this Teresa, like, she sounds like an amazing person, and it is true. I think she has a PhD. I know she has a PhD in anthropology, but has done all kinds of work around the world for people. So we're just family friends. We lived five blocks away from each other for about three years. We've never worked together. We've shared a lot of beers at pubs over time. I have pitched Tom. That pitched isn't the right word. I have thrown so many crazy ideas at Tom. I'm about 12 steps ahead in terms of like seeing things and wondering where things are headed. Like I'm just way too far in the future and connecting dots, especially when I drink too much coffee that like the connection just shouldn't really be there. Tom is very much like the next step. Like what is practical? What can we do today? We just had wonderful conversations. Were you thinking of building a big open source project then before like even Redwood was a thing? Like you were just like, eventually we're going to have, you know, some sort of crazy huge JavaScript open source project. No, that wasn't it. Although that was Tom's vision. So yeah, it's kind of fun. So over the course of going back three years now, some of the things in my career journey, two big questions for me, and I'll tie this into the conversations Tom and I were having. And again, this is like conversations over beer, friends just noodling on What's interesting in the world? What are we thinking about? For me, it was starting to drift into, I've always been very fascinated because one of my many careers was as a consultant, Chris doing what you're doing now, like building software tools and applications for companies, thinking a lot about process, but really noticing, one, there's ways to implement technology. The process is more readily receivable and acceptable to an organization as far as like onboarding. Getting a company to use a tool is infinitely harder than actually building the tool for them, which is hard in and of itself. Just getting them to figure out what they want is time consuming. I've always thought about what is the behavior around technology and also how do you enable people to learn a technology? And then I started noticing the kinds of ways technology would change the processes and the people and the organization depending on what it was doing and how it was implemented. As recently as five, four years ago, I started thinking more about the cause and effect of the technology products we have. And obviously now it's a really hot topic, but five years ago, we're getting into mobile devices and connectivity a lot more. And we're starting to see some things happening more so that we can measure in terms of technology's effect on people and society. So I was really interested in that. And then the other thing I was really interested in is what's happening 
culturally and at the team level of people making products. And I've always cared, as I mentioned, even going back to the academic days of life, I'd always cared a lot about what are we thinking about when we design a product? How do we think about the people that we're trying to solve problems for and what it might look like to help them? So human-centered design. But also I spent a lot of time in, in the world of business. I was a CTO at an investment bank for a very short amount of time. That's a very long conversation. It does require beers to go deep into it. It was a very challenging <laughs> career segment in my life. Uh, not exactly satisfying. But when you start thinking about the kind of effect that software will have on people, those who use it, the companies that use it, you also have to factor in that software is trying to make money for a company. That's a different kind of effect. So I'm a bit on a tangent here, but I was nerding out on those kind of things, how you could develop teams, how you could develop people, how we could think better about the kind of effect our products have in the world. I was working in the social impact space at a time, trying to get, there were two startups back to back, I was trying to get off the ground. So that's the stuff I'm talking to Tom about. And Tom is entering a new uh, season of his career as well. And he's starting to think about the next things that he wants to build. There were kind of two ideas he was floating around. One of them was this thing called hypothesis that was going to be a container of sorts for building a lot of different projects, things he just wanted to see exist in the world. Hypothesis does not exactly exist today yet, but that's in Tom's mind. He's got this whole list of things he just thinks should exist. And then at the time, it was this framework called Hammer. Tom had been working at Chatterbug, and it told me about this guy named Peter, and they've been thinking a lot about the challenges that were happening in the ecosystem with trying to build and react. That's what he was talking about. I'm way off in the clouds, 50,000 feet, talking about things that are, what if? Like, what if the world could be perfect and we could all live in harmony? And Tom is trying to figure out how to actually build things better. So we spent a couple of years talking about that stuff. That was a long story. That was cool. That was amazing. Thank you. My thoughts has never been a ruby on rails uh developer is did you ever think about a box to put all your gems in <laughs> someone who doesn't know ruby that sounds like a funny joke to me uh, i get it i don't write ruby but i get it <laughs> i i don't know i'm not a ruby guy i also i i don't i don't write ruby that is not my background my my background was php i drupled for a lot of years so after drupal I had a, uh, segue is not the right word. I took a, a left turn and started programming in R. What I did learn in college was math. Too much math. Math I can no longer do today. I do love data quite a bit. I like finding patterns, especially patterns that don't exist. I can make them exist. That is not a marketable skill set. Unless you're in academia, and <laughs> it's very marketable. No, in advertising, it's great. Like, I like that kind of stuff. It's wonderful. I digress. So I went from Drupal to R and Python. And also Gephi to do network analysis. So I did that for almost four years. And then I kind of missed React and all these transformations that were happening in the JavaScript ecosystem. Remember, because I thought it was all going to go away anyway, so who cares? This stuff popping up was of a lot of interest to me because I wanted to get back to building. And then I probably experienced what you guys experience, which is it is so much simpler to learn a thing in application development now. It is so complex to have to learn all the things you need to build one thing. Early days, it was HTML, CSS. It's about all you had. And then you would choose some server-side language to drive stuff. But it was a simple state. You could wrap your mind around the HTML and the CSS, and they were much more limited in scope. It was a smaller set of things they could do. 
And then like deployment was just painful, but even deployment was pretty linear. <laughs> you could just buy a server and you'd pay more money or not. And you'd put this thing on the server, right? Stick it on an FTP. So I kind of came in, we get into the things past 2010 and it's like, oh my gosh, people ask me, where do I start learning to program? I, I just try to find a site to send them to because there's not one thing. You have to learn all the things at once as well as how they all connect together. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good it's a good tangent and i think this is really important to know you see these mind maps on the internet where javascript is in the middle and then 20 arms coming off of it and then one of the arms is react and then there's 20 arms coming off react and saying all these different things and then there's apis and then 20 arms coming off that and it's like for you to be a senior developer you need to know everything and that's not the case at the end of the day but to what I understand about Redwood, I found it very easy to know it, understand it, and start using it. But I learnt each individual piece of technology separately. I already understood how Apollo worked. I already understood how Storybook worked, Jest, and React. When I understood, Redwood was doing all the magic, gluing it all together, and off the races we go, it was really, really easy for me to understand. And it just clicked with me. Then I start reading on the forums and there's some people, no fault to their own, just don't know where to start. Where does one tool end and the next start? Because it's all packaged in this shiny thing called Redwood. And that could be, I think, really, really hard if you've never programmed it before to just get started. Because what is it better to do? Follow the tutorial, switch off your brain and say, I'm not going to worry about how this actually works underneath or to know how it works underneath before you implement it. I, as a person, am very much a implement it and then work out how it works underneath. But not everybody's like that. We're all different. I can definitely speak to a different perspective where I came in not knowing any of the technologies. I didn't know Prisma. I didn't know Apollo. So I didn't really know GraphQL. I knew a little bit of React. That was pretty much it. For me... I was still able to actually use the thing and get going. The metaphor I would make is that, you know, you have a car, you kind of saw it, and you're immediately like, oh, I can rebuild that car. Whereas I was like, I can at least drive this car. We were both able to make use of it, even though it was at different levels. And you had a deeper understanding, but it was still designed in a way that I could still drive it, even if I couldn't rebuild it. And is that the biggest point of Redwood? Is do you need to know how it works to use it, to use it as best as you can to build with it? I would argue, no. I would say not to get started, but to make full use of it, you do. Not to get started, to give full use. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say, David? I like this. I was going to ask you guys some more questions about that too. Well, I want to loop back around. I want you all to throw some thoughts out there too about how do we approach this better? These are real, real-time challenges we have with the framework right now in terms of making it accessible for people to learn and adopt, especially if they're new to programming, new in their career. That's a huge priority to us. But then look, there's this whole other segment. I love the diversity of skills, the kind of people and where people are from that we have in the community and using this thing because we also have people that are decades into their career and finding Redwood to be a really powerful tool. They're adopting, moving very quickly with it. But those are two very different types of individuals I've just described. L let me flip it a little bit. 
Because I think here's here's the trick, and I don't mean trick in terms of anything devious going on, but I think there's some things that Rob and Tom and Peter and myself are intuitively doing. Now we're being asked why things are away, and we just learn that, oh, this works best, but now we're trying to describe what works best. How do people learn, and why do people learn? Anything. Super broad question. Why, Bernsey, did you learn to program in Minecraft? Because I wanted to achieve a goal. That goal was opening a door in the day and then it went from there and i think that's such a important question redwood's being tackled from two ends from the person who the first time they're ever going to write a web application could be with redwood to somebody who's been writing web applications for years how do you navigate that gap i think it goes back to the point of humanizing the technology and redwood's doing a really really good job at that What's the same thing between someone that's never done it before and someone that does it every day? Communication, how they understand the platform, they read the same documentation. Is that documentation got really complex words that you need to explain what it does? You tend to find that in this podcast, I'm not very good with long, complex technology words, but I know what they probably do because my brain just doesn't work like that. I'm a dyslexic. So I just see patterns easier than I see the names of the patterns, if that makes sense. For me, I think the way the gap is bridged most is by having something very human, having something as simple as possible and taking it in steps at their own pace because we all learn differently. How do we make sure that the, you would say, senior people in their career don't go, I know how to write React to... I've never wrote React before, what am I doing? Maybe we need two different tutorials. We don't know yet, and that's what we're working out. But one thing we could do is get Rob Cameron to create a to-do app. Yeah, well, maybe he is. And also, do you know about the tutorial? I'm QAing it. The return of the tutorial. The other tutorial is coming coming down the pipe. So, well, I I don't want to miss this point because I think it'll lead to some other things too. Around the learning, Anthony, for you... Why did you learn in the first place? And then also how? I think I, these are all leading questions, but... Well, the two are connected. The The why and the how are, are very intertwined. For me, it's sheer desperation. Having already tried to learn so many different things in coding and like making very slow incremental progress, but like never getting to somewhere where I really felt like I had command over tools that I could do something useful with. That was the first thing I got from Redwood after like learning myself for a couple years and even being in a boot camp for for going on many months at the time. It clicked in a way. It's hard to to explain because it wasn't like it clicked immediately, but once it got there, I had a holistic view of it in a way that I wasn't getting from learning all these other tools and trying to put them together. The way it it really clicked is just the tutorial. Like I really can't stress enough how important the tutorial is. I think it's groundbreaking in a lot of ways in terms of what it's doing as like an educational tool. I don't think anything like it has ever really been created before because it really, like you guys have said, I've talked about this in a lot of my talks, we haven't talked about it yet on the podcast, is tutorial-driven development. <laughs> is you think about how you're going to teach someone something before you actually build the thing. So you can ensure that the thing is actually going to make sense to learn before you build it. It's a really mind-bending idea that sounds really counterintuitive. 
I've even done it myself. Like I wrote an article and I wrote it like it was a tutorial before the project was actually built. And then I've built the project to work. Yeah, we're taking our own medicine on this because about a month ago, we were having a conversation and we brought up or I brought up that, man, we're at that place in a product life cycle where you've got a milestone and you've got scope against the milestone and like just building up your to-dos is just growing infinitely. Anytime you try to ship something against a milestone, that last push out the door, it gets really deep. It's hard. And we were feeling that. And it was also feeling it in an open source context. You have a lot of people that are coming in with new ideas all the time. You have exploration wants to happen and there's just bugs and things to fix. So it was like, oh my gosh, it's hard to limit scope and how do we choose? And this is, we're never going to get to be one. We're like, wait a second, we're not working against anything here like we did the first time. Shouldn't we have a second tutorial or revise the current tutorial or aren't we missing the thing we did the first time? So that's where the tutorial came out was we realized we didn't have that again for the second time around. We needed the DX, the process to work against to, to actually get to version one. That's what happened. And then where does this all play into learning to program, learning in general? There's some things to keep in mind here. And one is people have to want to learn a thing. A great way to want to learn something is when it's play and when it's empowering, when you feel some sense of like capability and potency, like Minecraft is just all about building stuff to no end or whatever end you want to create, which is no end in itself. It's play and it's fun. It's building. So there's desire there. There's, there's one and it's fun. Like there's an enjoyment in it. And that's really important because learning, it is just a core feature of learning that you have to experience pain. Humans are, it's a term I learned recently, we're anti-fragile. We need to be stressed. Our physiology, our senses, all of those things need to be used and stressed. If you want to get strong, what do you do? You stress those muscles. You work them to the point where they hurt, and that's what causes your whole body to react and grow a thing. When it comes to learning, there's this really delicate balance between stressing just enough so that you're actually learning, but not enough so that you quit. So what happens in programming is you have to understand how programming works, but a lot of people, there's a lot of ways into understanding the logic and things behind programming, but then you've got to want to do something. So wanting to build something, I want to build an app. That's a very typical thing people want to do. But then how do you actually take them on that journey where they feel a sense of power? They feel their strength, their capability. I can do this thing and I like it. I like this feeling. But then you have to level them up over time. Video games are exceptional at this. You can hijack these things, but it's a natural way that humans work so that you level them up over time so that you want to learn, but then you are learning because things get harder and there's a challenge. Okay, so the tutorial is doing that very well. It invites you in, you experience, oh my gosh, this is awesome. I built a thing. And not only I built a thing, it was fun. And then you want to learn. And then it turns out there's a lot of pain ahead of you, but you ignore the pain because it's going to be worth it because you remembered how fun it was to build something, which is awesome. So what happens when you run into configuration issues, integration issues, just the raw complexity of trying to like get something spun up locally and then, oh my gosh, deploy this has to live somewhere else in my computer, like locally. So you get to all these steps along the way that you're not really building the thing, but you have to connect the thing to other things so that you can build the thing. And that's discouraging. That's where people quit. So what I'm trying to describe there on a high level is things that want to discourage people to try and learn something. 
in the JavaScript ecosystem, especially when people talk about this fragmentation of stuff, what they're saying is like, I am so tired of having to manage config and integration. And I just, just want to quit. It's something I'm having to learn, but I don't want to learn anymore. I'm done. Right. So then they move on and try to find something else. that's more satisfying, like the human side of this thing. I want to experience satisfaction in what I do every day. And if I don't, I'm going to find another way to do that. Which also, we can loop back to that because that's, that's how communities and teams work as well. Satisfaction plays in a very important part there. We're trying to figure that out. So I think what we've nailed, and by we, I really want to put that on Tom and Rob and Peter. The first version of the tutorial, I came in late. I came in in February. So I was a part of the conversations as Hammer was getting started, turned into Redwood. But I didn't actually start working on Redwood until February of this year. So that was really those guys, and they nailed it. The problem to solve now is connecting the dots for what people need to learn next. And I felt this pain too. So my last project was a mean stack, classic you know, Mongo, Express, Angular 1, and Node, which was really fun to work with. The performance was great. I, I really enjoyed it, a very well integrated stack. But there were some reasons why I wouldn't recommend that to people today. Now, okay, so I came into this and I'm trying to figure out, wait, what does Prisma do? <laughs> And this is February. Prisma was still in, no, what it was doing yet. We talked about that in our first episode. Right? Wait, where's Prisma start and stop and Apollo? Okay, so I've got Apollo on the server, but I'm using Lambdas and I'm building all that. That's weird. Zip it and ship it? What? Oh, okay. And then Apollo client and wait, where does that fit in versus React? I had to go through all those things too. So I think what we're missing now, there's a lot of conversation in our forums and discussion around how do we connect the dots to people so that when they do the tutorial, they know where to go next and find the resources they need to do X. I feel weak or didn't understand how services work. Well, a lot of people go to services. It's like, where are the docs for services? Well, actually what they want to do is they want the CRUD docs for Prisma is what they're really asking, but no one was connecting those dots for them. All right. End deluge questions. Did that make sense? Am I right? You know, I got a bunch of follow-up stuff, but go ahead, Chris. Yeah. You, you like to go on a long conversational spin like I do. But I guess one of my first, I guess, wish list would be things that I think Red would really, really need. When it breaks, it gives you a link and says, here's how to fix this problem. Because Redwood is earlier on, we know that. But when I recently worked in Next.js, every time it broke, it gave me a link and said, this is what's gone wrong. And there's been many times in my Redwood development where things have broken, but the only way I actually work out why they were broken was by opening the console, console.log, network requests, and then looking at the reason the network request failed. This is something I've heard other communities talk about for sure. Two that I've heard that do this really well, I've heard that Rust and Elm both have compilers that essentially will teach you how to fix your errors as you get them. So I think this is something that other people have definitely thought about. This is actually something that the Redwood IDE is going to be perfect for. We need to get Aldo on, talk to him, because that's where you get a tool that is able to be aware of your whole Redwood project because it has a language server in it. And so it can actually tell what's broken and how it relates to the larger pieces of Redwood. I think that that's definitely something that is the next step to the tutorial is making a better tool that can actually like teach you as you're building something out. That I think is the biggest barrier to understanding most of these frameworks. The tutorial's great, but it's a neatly pathed 
path, you know? It's it's tidy. It's artificial. Of course it is. Yeah, it's artificial. But then you get to the end of the path and now it's forests that you need to walk through and make your way through. And then you get stuck. And what's the easiest way right now? I have this problem myself with Redwood. Something's broken. Okay, first, try and work out if it's me that broke it. Second, poke someone on the Redwood. Is it broken? And if I really think it's a Redwood problem, I'll poke Peter. <laughs> That's, yeah, welcome, welcome to JavaScript. Chris, absolutely, 100%. I think that's a brilliant insight and needs to happen. A part of that is just maturity and time. We're not there yet. But Aldo is thinking about this. There's a lot of major changes happening with the IDE extension right now. So he's just been doing mechanical things to port it over, make it its own project, et cetera. It feels slow right now. The foundation is being set so that that can take off again. Three months ago, there were conversations happening. This is a JavaScript problem. You have so many places errors can come from, and then you have so many different ways a thing could be connected to another thing. Trace is just painful, and you add deploy on top of that. And Chris, so I get really fired up when like technology is causing people the wrong kind of pain. We should fix that. Like that's just wrong. Just to complete that, the diagnostics. Anthony's on it. The diagnostics is where that needs to happen because there needs to be a centralized place where all those errors come to. But the diagnostics is doing, that's more static at the moment. We need to do a better job of integrating and the IDE can do this, the runtime, because you have server and website. And then also we need more visibility. It is just an infrastructure challenge right now with what was Jamstack now evolving to some version two of Jamstack. As we start doing more with the data side and get more into full stack, the kinds of things you can do at build time and have visibility to just needs to get a lot better. I mean, I'm even encountering this right now. I had some problems happening with my build for Prisma client, the engine and the binary, and I was blowing up my API size that I was trying to upload. I'm like, what's going on? It's because I'm actually getting two binaries locally. Is that what's actually happening? I have no visibility to that stuff. And that's where you quit. And that's where you're like, screw this. I'm going to go use another framework. It's really hard. I currently have a problem with webhooks and Stripe, and it all works on my computer. As soon as I upload it to Vercel, it just dies. And half my application works on Stripe Webhooks. And that is currently a problem. But do you want to know the other problem? I tried to upload it to Netlify. And my server's too big for Netlify functions. So what's the ultimate solution? <laughs> Get on Edge Workers beta. Maybe. Yep. See? Oh, but I, okay, maybe I can help you with that. Yes. Maybe, okay, we'll talk about that another time. Hey, so my passion in all this stuff is the community side of things. Probably, I think a topic could be easy to kind of close this out at. And by the way, thank you for asking me to do this. I love this stuff. I don't get to do this kind of stuff very often. I'm really excited and honored you would ask. I have no expectations anyone would listen to this. It's just fun. And I'd love to do it again in the future. And we'll get better at it too, which would be great. Yeah, we got so many more things to talk about. <laughs> I could keep going on like a lot of things. I would love you guys direct here, but just to say, I'd love to spend as much time as you want talking about community and people, the human side of this and what we're trying to do there, because it is as important, especially to Tom and I, what's happening on the human side of this project and where we want that to go as is all this code stuff is. Now, the framework has to work and deliver on its promises or else there won't be the people. But if we don't have a certain kind of effect on the people, we would actually consider this project a disappointment. Exactly. I think as the organizer of FS Jam, we see that other frameworks out there that are tackling very 
similar problems in different ways that I would love to talk about sometime. <gasps> what? No. There's no other frameworks. Sometimes, some of them are making really interesting solutions that could also solve some of Redwood's problems. One of my questions is, do you think it would be worth it for Redwood to be inspired by the other frameworks? Oh, it does. It is and it's happened. I think and vice versa. Absolutely. That's the way these things work. The challenge there is when you feel a sense of competition with a product or a company, this happens a lot in startups and businesses, and you start to mimic things because you feel like, oh, thing X is popular because of feature Y. If we had feature Y too, we would be popular. Might be popular in spite of feature Y. Right? The challenge is, there's a few topics here. When you look at innovation, the horse-drawn carriage, so I'm going way back in time here, thought about too many things. When you look at like the horse-drawn carriage turning into the horseless carriage, now known as a car, there was a massive period of trying to figure out what a car is going to look like, taste like, feel like, like what are the design requirements, what like works for the user. Think of them like in patterns and user interface design. The hamburger menu that people revolted about for years and years and years, well, now it's just standard. It's an expected pattern because it works. The users expect it. So that thing happens in any industry, but it takes a long time for those patterns, those design requirements to, to evolve and get solidified. There were all kinds of engines that were used in cars. Steam, coal, electric engines, very early on for the horseless carriage. But then they you know, settled on this gas combustion, right? So it took a while for that to become the thing. That's going to happen with this full stack jam stack. We're just not there yet. We don't know what those patterns are. So we would be very much amiss to not be inspired and build on. And I say like things are always derivative in every industry. Copy each other. It's not a jab. That's not taking away. That's how the industry is going to move forward. We need to find what those things are. But if you verge on your path and get distracted from your vision and your core values and your ultimate goal for what you want a framework to deliver on, then it's not helpful. And there are some things about Redwood, and we talk about developer experience all the time, that just has to trump the kinds of features we add. Because if we add features for features sake, this is my complaint about Gatsby. Gatsby is entering configuration hell. You have to have a template to start with. It's really challenging to start from a vanilla Gatsby project. I don't even know what that is. And then you just get into like plugins on top of plugins. And oh my gosh, this is not fun. And that's what we don't want to do because I think Gatsby, that's kind of their value is add plugins. But what's the effect it's having on the developer? A satisfying experience. So again, that was a lot of thoughts all strung together. But I love the collaboration that's happening between the players right now. They're on our forums and we're on them. You know, Peter and Brandon have had good conversations. I've had wonderful interactions with him on the old internet. Same with Chris Ball. Like It's fun to see because I hope what we all get out of this is relationships that we get to carry forward because that's what will change the ecosystem versus a whole bunch of disparate frameworks that are all competing against each other for market share. That's not why we're doing open source. At least that's not why I'm doing open source. My, my clothing thought on this is competition is a hell of a good thing. It's good to know what over the road's doing, but at the same time, that you can't let that distract you because then you lose sight of your own goals. But one of the core things that is happening in FS Jam is abstractions and what matters to the developer. 
because every single FS Jam framework out there right now does every single abstraction in slightly a different way. And some of them abstractions may click with different type of people, different type of products. And I am one that always says, whenever you start a project, you should always assess what's best for that project. Not what's necessarily best for you, because at the end of the day, you'll be finding an uphill battle if what you like doesn't work well for what it should be. Yeah, all these groups are growing and they're growing well and they're getting whole new type of people. But we have to always make sure that we never pick up the pitchforks because we're all trying to get to the same goal of this FS Jam ecosystem. But we are all taking different routes and that's okay because different developers may say, I like that route better than that route. And that's the one they go down. And that's okay at the end of the day. Absolutely. 100% agree. And there will be a lot of different solutions. There'll be a lot of different frameworks because the problem sets are different, of course. And that'll be the paradox and the tension between finding out what really works for the developers, because they're the ones who will say if thing X adds value or not at the end of the day, if they use it, right? Paying attention to that, but then also staying true to some specific vision and some kind of problem solution set that you are designing the framework to be applied toward. Absolutely. And that'll be fun. But then mixed on top of it is maintaining an open source project is hard. The person that just, I can't applaud enough is, is Brandon and what he's doing with Blitz and carrying that on his shoulders. And it's stressful and the demands as your project grows, right? Here's what happens in open source. You most often become punished for your success because you get more attention, more demands, more incoming, and there's no business model built into the whole thing. You still got to pay your bills somehow in the middle of like all these demands because your framework is now popular. Like it's good. The thing is good. People are using it. So now the consequences of developing and creating something that people like is you're stressed. You're like, this was fun for me, but now I feel pulled in a million directions and I still have my bills to pay. I really applaud what the remix gents are doing, trying to pivot into a new kind of business model. It's not remix run is not going to be open source itself. There's a license with it. I really hope that works for them because that would support then the React router. Those things could be complementary. This is the challenge of these types of projects is open source. So that's also happening behind the scenes. And I think that's where the competition thing can come in too, because you're like, wait a second, <laughs> I'm working so hard. And what's my end result at the end of the day? At the end of the day, what's more important, the amount of stars you have on GitHub or the people that you connect with and change every day with your applications? And there you go. That's a good segue into questions around community. And you know what? I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you I tracked the stars on Redwood and felt some satisfaction of like, oh, people are using it. Our stars have stalled out, by the way. I think we've been at 4.8 forever, and I'm like, oh, is something wrong? Because that's an easy thing to feel. It's a pit of despair. It's a pit of despair, you know? Yeah, the pit of, right? So something's going on versus I actually wrote an, an email, a venture investor, as you can imagine, we have a lot of people that would love to invest in Redwood and they can't reach Tom, although Tom gets back to him, but then they're like, oh, who else can we talk to? So then they email other people on the team and like, oh, are you going to turn Redwood into a business or is it a business model? Could we invest in Redwood is a question. No, not right now. Like we don't know. That's not the plans for it at all, but we don't know. But the thing I told this investor in email, we don't know how yet it's going to look at the end of this. We're learning as we go. What we're trying to measure is not how successful Redwood is in terms of like 
how many projects get spun up or like what is its value in terms of monetary. What we're trying to measure is what is the most amount of people that can actually get to do something they haven't done before because of Redwood? What are the teams that get created because Redwood existed and the teams that would never happen earlier? What, what kind of collaboration, right? So how do we actually measure the human effect or the effect that Redwood has on the humans involved versus just measuring the things that the humans produce with Redwood? And for us, the former is much more interesting than the latter. Although from a business perspective, we should be paying more attention to the latter. Did that make any sense? It did, but we're going to have to wrap it up there. We have so much more that we could talk about. So many things to say. And I 100% think we should get you back on for a second episode and talk about the ethics, the tethics of open source technology. (laughs) Oh man, way to drop tethics. Yes. Uh, you want a little, here you go. This will be the, the little nugget. What is the teaser at the end of the episode? When I think about, and so this is where the ethics plays in, but when I think about ethics and technology and people and users and all that stuff, it, it really boils down to just a few very simple things. If you want a technology product to have a kind of effect on the world, especially on people, if you have some vision for the kind of potential you would like to unlock or increase in people with your technology product, then what kind of person or what kind of team would you need to have in order to build that product? What would they do? What would they think about? More importantly, how would they behave? What characteristics and qualities would you expect from that product team in order to have X effect on the world with their technology? And boy, do I have ideas. And it happens. It happens all the time. We just don't pay much attention to it. You need to write a book. Well, Aristotle actually wrote the book. It's just a little inaccessible. You could call it the price to pay? Question mark. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you for tuning into this episode of FS Jam with David Price. We have really enjoyed having him on and we would love to have him back on soon. Yes. Please. Tell us what you thought of the episode on Twitter. Our handle is fsjam.org. And that's it from me. Yeah, thanks a lot, David. That was a blast. There's like plenty of other things I would love to talk about. Uh, Just to kind of wrap up some of these things, I want to shout out the book Working in Public by Nadia Eggball. She talks a lot about what's going on in open source right now and covers it in, in a way that hasn't really been covered anywhere else in terms of like really telling the story of what people like you were doing. And if you really want to sound smart when you're talking about how people are learning, there's actually a specific term for what you were talking about. It's called Vygotsky's Circle of Competence. Being just outside your circle of competence is where you want to be when you're learning. Uh. I have a formal education degree. Vygotsky was a really incredible Russian education theorist. The circle of competence is an idea that really sticks with me. That's what you were describing earlier. Yeah, wonderful. We'll talk about that more next time as well. So, gentlemen, thank you. See, look what this weird, crazy project called Redwood did relationally, right? And regardless of what happens to Redwood, and I hope good things for it, this is what we get to carry forward. So I'm really thankful for both of you. It's been fun and there's so much more to come. So, and look at this, look at you guys doing this podcast thing. Way to go. Hats off to you both. Thank you for being on board. Thank you.
the bald Leon? 